Welcome to Public Worship and the Christian Life, a podcast by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. In this series of conversations, hosted by Calvin Institute of Christian Worship staff members, we invite you to explore connections between the public worship practices of congregations and the dynamics of Christian life and witness in a variety of cultural contexts, including places of work, education, community development, artistic and media engagement, and more. Our conversation partners represent many areas of expertise and a range of Christian traditions, offering insights to challenge us as we discern the shape of faithful worship and witness in our own communities. We pray this podcast will nurture curiosity and provide indispensable countercultural wisdom for our life together in Christ. In this episode, Kristen Verholst talks with Christy Lauren Adams, author of Parable of the Brown Girl, about her new book and how we all can encourage and empower the sacred lives of girls of color. Well, Christy Lauren Adams, it is so great to meet you, and I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. So thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) So you, just earlier this year, had your book come out, Parable of the Brown Girl. So tell us the story behind the book. Why did you write it? I wrote Parable of the Brown Girl to give voice to the young Black girls that I've been working with in my career, but also the ones that um, maybe have indirectly been a part of, you know, my life, whether it's through mentoring, you know, even outside of a job. So I wanted to share their stories in general. Wonderful. And maybe you could just tell us, too, we didn't get an introduction at the very beginning, but tell us a little bit about what you do right now and where you're working and and doing your ministry work. Yeah, so right now I live and work at a boarding school called the Hill School. I was hired here actually as the Firestone Endowment Chaplain, and also I work as a religious studies faculty here, but I'm also the Interim Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So that's it. That's actually something that's fairly new. I was doing like some co-partnering work in diversity, equity, inclusion as more of like a Mm co-director my first two years. And this past summer, that person left and and then I just sort of took on that role, that added role. Um, So I'm juggling those three things mainly. But also when you when you work at a boarding school, you also are responsible for you know, the kids pretty much all day. <laughs> right. So, um, and we all live and work here. So I'm responsible for a group of maybe about 20 to 22 girls. So that, that we have like dorm responsibilities and, and then also, you know, an advisor for eight kids. So there's always these like little things, but my main, main role here is, is the chaplain of the school. Wonderful. So what has been the response to the book? What have you been hearing from people who are reading it and talking about it? Yeah, people have been kind. Um, you know, you just never know. You don't know. You When you write a book, you're writing for an audience of one, you know. And, you know, I think those that are in the PhD world and scholars, I mean, they know that they're writing differently for research purposes, et cetera. But I'm not necessarily in that world. And so when I wrote, I just... 
it was just me that was reading it and watching it. So you're just never quite sure how people are going to respond. But I did want to make sure that the girls, uh, even though their their stories were anonymous in the book, I know who these girls are. And I did want to make sure that they felt that like they were rep- represented the best. And I think generally I've had some some positive reactions, but the the most important reaction that I got was I was actually here. She was right here in this very spot. I am in my apartment now, and one of the girls that I wrote about was was a student here that I was working with. And when I had my first manuscript printed out, but I was had chapters just laying around, and her chapter was on the table, and I were in the I was in the kitchen, and she said, "Is this my chapter? Can I look at it?" And I was like, "Sure." You know, I was talking to a friend of mine and then I looked over maybe like 20 minutes later, maybe a half hour later, and she had tears down her eyes. And I said, what's wrong? Oh, my gosh. You know, and <laughs> she was just like, I, I don't think, you know, a, a lot of people I've shared my story a lot. And I just don't feel like people hear me. And I felt like you really heard me. You really got it. I've had generally positive, positive reactions from people. And it's not that those weren't important. Um, But that one is the most profound to me, the one that sticks with me. And if nobody had read the book ever, then I would have felt I would have felt good about it. But the book actually just got my first award for the book, which I'm pretty happy about from the African-American Literary Awards show. And there was an award show this past Saturday, Saturday. Yes. And it was on Zoom because we're in a pandemic. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, and I, I don't say I didn't take it seriously. I just, I just, it's just been a year, you know, how the year has been. And I think, you know, seeing it and seeing where they were in years past, they were at the Schomburg Museum in Harlem for their show and all that. And I was like, oh, okay, mine's going to be on Zoom. And so when I logged on, I just remember thinking to myself, like my best friend was like, did you, you know, are you telling anybody about this? And I was like, no, I just, I'm just going to log on. And so she wound up watching and then, but there were these people that popped up like Walter Mosley and Michael, Michael Eric Dyson. And there were a few people up there that are named Kylie, who just wrote the book, Such a Fun Age. People that I looked up to like my whole life and people who are in the literary world now that that's books are, are doing well were on that same Zoom call being um, being honored. And that was such an honor to me. So it was like humbling and bittersweet. It was just a bunch of emotions, but it was like the end of the first award I've gotten for anything like book wise. So I, I felt pretty good about that. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Yeah. So as you think about the girls and others who are going to read this book, what are your your hopes for how people might choose to engage the book? What is it you really desire people to take away? I think, you know, I, I know that there are plenty of other stories. I'm not the first person to write a book about young Black girls. I will not be the last person. So there's nothing new under the sun with this book. You know, even the things that I wrote about in the book, I've referenced other secondary sources, you know, people whose whose work I've, you know, I've read and was influenced by. So it wasn't like brand new, but I do want people to to take away from it sort of an, an awareness, I think, more of a sensitivity to, to these to these girls. And by these girls, I don't mean the ones that are in the book. You know, I just mean the girls that are in their communities, in this society, paying attention a bit more not making assumptions and also knowing that there are, there are so many other stories of girls beyond this. I mean, you know, that I couldn't fit into the book. And if, if people begin to be more aware and listen 
listen and pay attention, actively listen, then I'm hoping that this demographic will be a little less um, invisible because they have a tendency to not just be marginalized in society, but also to just be overlooked, to not be seen at all, you know? Sure. Yeah. As you, you know, in your role as chaplain and diversity director, teacher, have you found, have you now since written the book and it's come out, anything changed for you in terms of what you now are processing from your own writing and your own teaching and, and work? Yeah, but I don't know if it's because of Parable the Brown Girl. You know, it's like, it's the, it's the type of work that that I'm in, that we're in. Is this, you're always growing. You're always, you always need to grow. You always need to evolve. Right. You can't stop, you know. And so that that's, that's always going to be the case. You know, my students continue to challenge me. You know, I might be teaching the same, I'm teaching a new class this year and the same class. And it doesn't matter if it's new or old, different set of, of students. And it's, I see something different. And I teach one class called Religion and Film in Contemporary Society. And I've been watching these films the last three years. But sometimes it's just, they never get old in the sense that there's always something else that I didn't see in the film before. We watched a show, a film called The, the Truman Show with Jim Carrey, we watched The Matrix, even Bruce Almighty. And there's just something else that I get, something else that I see. And I, I feel the same way about my career, about, you know, um, just working with young people in general, you know. But as far as writing is concerned, you know, I am working on a new, a new book. I don't say it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> I feel like you, because it was, it was difficult the first time for a bunch of reasons, you know, you just don't have time, you know, it's just a lot's happening. You know, unless you're on a summer vacation, not in a pandemic, you know, at a beach house somewhere and you're making money just to be there, you know, it's just not, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be a pleasurable experience, you know, because of other responsibilities. But the process of writing is, is you know, I don't, I don't put the pressure up for the process to be the same because I realize everybody's process is different and, and, uh, and organic but I still go through the same imposter syndrome cycle of, you know, every chapter, is this good? Is it not good? You know, I mean, it's again, I'm back to an audience of one, but there is a, going back to the work that I do, there's an authenticity that young people have beyond, you know, uh, race and ethnicity, et cetera, that always, always challenges me to be as true to myself and to the work as possible. So as I work with, young people now, it forces me when I'm writing to make sure that I'm bringing that same energy to, to the page. That's great. You are listening to Public Worship and the Christian Life, Conversations for the Journey, a podcast produced by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. Check out our website at worship.calvin.edu for resources related to this topic and many other aspects of public worship. So here at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, we are about the study of worship, but then also about the practice. And so let's take it into the kind of the Sunday morning worship experiencing or the weekly worship experience for so many churches, worshiping communities all across North America. What difference does do these stories make to these pastors, youth group leaders, youth ministers? 
how should they preach differently or lead prayer differently? How do we sing better that that better recognizes these very, as you put it, sacred lives, these important lives in our communities? I talk about um, the Imago Day, the image of God in the book a lot, about these young Black girls being made in God's image and not just us generally saying that, but, you know, us seeing them that way and also treating them that way in practice. Mm-hmm. But Imago Day is a, is a term that I try to live by. I have to continue to remind myself that and we all do. And when I worked at Azusa Pacific University in, in California, we had, it was, a, it was a diversity training day they had for student leaders, but it was called Imago Day, the day for lack of a better word. <laughs> I, guess. I mean, for no pun intended, or maybe there is pun intended, I'm not sure. But it was image of God. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Of course, a day devoted to diversity and equity and inclusion is called Imago Day. Like, duh, right? Like, we're all made in the image of God. I just don't see, see why we haven't picked that up much more, you know, like that correlation. Like, I should be hearing it in the same sentence all the time, right? Because that, that is quite literally what, the, what Imago Day is, what the Imago Day is. And it's funny how many, well, Christian, people of Christian faith, have read my book and said, explain to me this Imagio um, di, like they don't, you know, and then I, I go and explain it. And I'm happy to do that, but I'm also kind of sad because I'm like, not that we all need to know Greek, right? But like the 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 substance, the content, you know, of, of the term and what that means. Gosh, if we heard enough of that, we can't hear enough of it from the pulpits and the youth groups, et cetera. I think that would help us when it comes to these conversations around uh, diversity in general. So I'm hoping by bringing that up in this book and, and by just pushing that, that in general, um, again, nothing new under the sun. It was, it was taught to me that we'll begin, you know, like you said, as, as pastors and, and, lead a youth group leaders, et cetera, to just be much more sensitive and mindful of our context. And, you know, if I'm preaching and I'm looking around the room and in a non-pandemic world, (laughs) a crowded room, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and I'm looking around the room and there are, you know, these multiple, we talk about multi-ethnic, you know, faces, et cetera. Then why are we, why, why is our preaching so narrow? You know, if, if it's about the Imago Day, then our, our preaching and our preparation for that takes that in mind and is more sensitive to that, to that context as opposed to just saying, you know, well, we're all one, which is sort of the scapegoat. It's hard work to, to, yeah. to preach to that context and to speak into the uniqueness of, of each person represented. It's really difficult. And I think we've taken, the church has taken the easy road out by saying, well, we're just one. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Yeah, Paul said it. Fine. But you're, you're missing that, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, Trinity, like, oh, well, they're just all one. No, well, you, you know, we work within the nuances of that. So why can't we work within the nuances of the, the diversity, you know, of the body? And I don't just mean that, you know, my first, I've self-published this book years ago called Misinterpreted Gospel Singleness. Mm. Part of it is about how, you know, it's like single married and how, you know, we don't recognize the diversity of people's background, relational backgrounds in church, just in general, how there are, you know, single women who are recently divorced, 
who are single parents, you know, widows don't want to get married again, or maybe trying to get married again. You know, there are young single women, then there's older single women, not just women, but you know, and then there are people in marriages who are like separated or trying to figure out how to, you know, get out or stay in, or there's just such a, there's such diversity in that yet we just so one or the other, but it's, it's difficult to preach that. You have to be prayerful and mindful and intentional. My boss in, uh, at APU, I always, I always credit him because whenever I preached, we would have, um, we always had these images behind us, like that we would send to our media group, just of, you know, if we were talking about a scripture or something, but he's like, if you're going to use an image, it needs to be different people, different representation up there. And um, so he's like, I'm, I'm very careful about when I put out Jesus, you know, I put out different mm-hmm. images of Jesus when I speak. And, you know, if I'm, if I want to say, you know, by they, you know, we're all made in the image of God or whatever, I'm going to make sure I'm not going to just have a white face up there. You know, mm-hmm. he would say, and then I started being more intentional about my preaching. So to bring that back, <laughs> I just hope that something like parable can contribute to that allowing people to be more sensitive to the different types of people in their context and not just sensitive to just saying, recognizing they're in the room, but also mm-hmm. acknowledging them and, and how they, how they practice their worship. Yeah. And the, and just the amazing diversity in, in all lives, but especially black lives, brown lives. And it's not this um, monolithic kind of culture, but mm-hmm. it's this broad yeah, diversity So I want to take it even just a little bit more. So this is parable of the brown girl. So it's, it's black lives and it's brown lives, but it's the lives of women, of young women. Mm -hmm. So what about the role of, of the woman's voice in the worshiping community, in the church? That's been another, I think, marginalized voice. And so now we're pairing together black voices, which have been marginalized, right? And female voices together in these young girls. So Mm -hmm. what, what message of, I guess, encouragement, hope do you want to bring to young black and brown women who are part of the church and will be leading in our worshiping communities? Yeah, I tried really hard in the book to continue to bring it back to this, this fact that the divine lives within them, right? And I, it, I was extreme in that spiritual language on purpose. Because it's not just, you know, God loves you. Mm-hmm. It's God's in you, you know, and that's different. And I, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, they've, they've received God loves you to that extent, because a lot of times the representatives of God aren't doing a good job loving. So they don't really understand God's love. And it's not to say that to negate that message, because it's very important. But I do think this, I brought up the scripture, um, do you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and how that's really been used when it comes to women and girls, purity culture, right? It's been all about sex, that scripture. And that's what women are sort of, you know, made to think when they hear that scripture. But I was like, can we listen to that again? You know, I, I, I wrote about it and I said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, like, that's a big deal, you know, like it's, We've used it as it's the temple, so don't do this, but not enough emphasis on the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's a big deal. And I just, just stop there. I talk about, I think, Proverbs 8, about wisdom calling out in the streets and how wisdom is personified as a she, Sophia, 
I feel like in seminary, I originally got that from Brian Blunt. I know he's going to be a, a Dr. Blunt's going to be a guest up here, but Dr. Blunt was a professor of mine at Princeton in a few classes. He used to talk about Sophia a lot. And so I got to credit him, you know, this idea that you are, you are wisdom personified. And Sophia is, is, is inherently divine. The wisdom of God is in you to keep pushing that narrative, have to keep putting that there because I want them to to walk away and, and feel that confidence when you're like, wow, God lives within me. There's a there's a different level of confidence that you walk with. Um, again, taking it back to my religion and film class, the Bruce Almighty film. Have you seen Bruce Almighty? I have not seen that oh, one. Oh, <laughs> gotta see it. So Jim Carrey is, you know, he gets God's powers, right? It's basically what it is. It's not a lot to it. And Morgan Freeman is God, so he's got that perfect voice. But Jim Carrey is like complaining the whole movie in the beginning. And then, you know, he's mad at God all the time. And so Morgan Freeman comes down and he says, you can have my powers. Go have fun or whatever. So in the beginning, he's like scared. And then he realizes like, oh, my gosh, I've got I've got God's powers. And then Morgan Freeman comes back and talks to him and says, look, you can do everything. You just can't, you know, interfere with free will. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is finally when he has the second conversation with God, he's like, all right. And they play the song, I Got the Power. And he's like walking around and he's just doing all this stupid stuff. But he's like, he's walking all extra confident, you know, because he's got this power now. And it's really funny. Like it's a comical movie, but it's the image that I get when people realize like, wow. And by the end of the movie, you, you know, he realizes that he didn't need to have God's power in order to help people, in order to affect change you know, in order to even change his own life. It wasn't about God's power. And he can walk around with that same level of confidence. So I just really want these girls, you know, I want all my students, you know, but um, these girls in particular to, to know that even though they may not have society's approval or affirmation, that they have God's affirmation and not just in that God loves them, but also that God has literally empowered them. Indeed. Christy Lauren Adams, it has been a delight to talk with you. And I really uh, want to commend your book to, to everyone. It's been a great read and a wonderful conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We invite you to visit our website at worship.calvin.edu to learn more about the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, an interdisciplinary study and ministry center dedicated to the scholarly study of the theology, history, and practice of Christian worship and the renewal of worship in worshiping communities across North America and beyond.